a uh, Christmas message, and uh, this morning I want to talk about hopes and fears. That little song that we sang just a little while ago, uh, that song that says, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Before we get into scripture this morning, let's pray. Lord, we come before you thanking you for your word, and we thank you, God, for the, the gift of being able to sing and to praise you and to sing even in these days the, the songs of your birth that remind us of the incarnation, that central doctrine, doctrine to the Christian faith. And Lord, we just thank you for that. Thank you we have a Savior from among us. And Lord, who is able to save us from our sins. And so as we open up your word this morning, may you just do your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. That song that we just sang, interesting history to that, back in April of 1865, April 14th of 1865, uh, President Abraham Lincoln and his wife and uh, a couple of his guards went to Ford's Theater to view a play, or sit in on a play, um, called Our American Cousin. And as they were sitting there shortly after 10 p.m. that evening, John Wilkes Booth came into the booth that that Lincoln was in, in the balcony, and fired one shot into Lincoln's head, and a few hours later, the president died of that shot, having been assassinated. It was a very sad time. It was a time that had just come out of the Civil War, uh, and the Civil War was basically winding down, although, as Booth would later give motive for why he did that, he wanted, like many in that time, to just bring the Confederacy back into uh, existence and felt that uh, there was revenge needed for what had happened during the Civil War and all that, and it was a divided time in our nation like no other time. It was a time of of great hopelessness. Lincoln had brought them through uh, the Civil War and uh, now looking at another term, uh, people really thought this is the rebuilding of America and all of a sudden your president is cut down uh, by an assassin's hand. It wasn't long after that as Lincoln's body was being um, moved around the country for viewing, essentially. Uh, It went to Philadelphia uh, and there, a pastor, uh, Philip, Phillips Brooks, who was an Episcopalian pastor, came to view the body of Lincoln. He was greatly saddened by what had happened, and that next Sunday had a message, that a sermon that dedicated much of it to President Abraham Lincoln. He became, shortly after that, very depressed, and Brooks became so depressed that his church decided that he needed a a time away, and so they sent him away to the Holy Land uh, so that he could go on a a sort of a pilgrimage and kind of get his spirit renewed within him. And as the story goes, he this was some months later, he was traveling from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and matter of fact, it was on Christmas Eve when he went to Bethlehem. And it was there while he was going through that bustling city and, and night was falling 
that as he came along to the church of the nativity which is by tradition the place uh, over built over the place where jesus was born he went there to view um the the very place that that jesus came into this world uh, by mary and it was shortly after that that he wrote that song that we just sang and has become one of the most familiar uh, Christmas tunes and sung by, by people all over the world in that. But, oh, little town of Bethlehem. But, you know, in that, as I read that verse earlier, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And you often think about that, that God in his, in his planning and in the fullness of time and in the choosing of the very place and the people to be involved and all of that, all that culminated in that one time, that act, where Jesus is born in this world, brought into this world in a manger in Bethlehem. Think about that. Well, hopes and fears. There's lots of, ho- there's lots of fears, aren't there? Lots of fears in this world. Uh, if you were to look at the headlines just from this morning, I went up to a couple different sites, but here is some of the headlines. Turmoil in leadership in Washington. Economist predicts 2024 will bring biggest crash of our lifetime. Dictator Kim Jong-un bans Christmas. Activists send Bibles to him anyway. Deadly zombie disease sweeping U.S. makes animals super aggressive. Iran threatens to shut down the Mediterranean Sea. Pastors attacked in India. After school Satan Club triggers backlash from parents. Christians murdered in African nation. And you could go on and on and on. Many of those headlines, they they might change slightly throughout the the weeks, but if you were to look past this past, on this past year, lots of negative things that come across uh, in the news in those. And and that's the truth. Bad news always abounds, right? Always bounce. It's what sells. Newspapers, well, not newspapers anymore, but, you know, clicks and all of that, right? And um, that's, that's what really moves. But God sent forth his son, and when he did so, they proclaimed, I bring you glad tidings of good things, good news. And that's the hope part. And we're going to talk about some of that hope in those things. In the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, The prophet Isaiah received revelation from God, was told to write this down, and he predicts uh, and prophesies in accordance to God the the very things that will be associated with the coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, this sounds in some ways many, it sounds like our times. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. He's writing to Israel and you think there's lots of people distressed in Israel today? Yes, there are. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. 
You have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Every, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for the burning and fuel of fire. Some of that is yet future. That hasn't happened. Right now, there's still war going on in that land and has been from the centuries when Isaiah prophesied that. But there's coming a day when there will be the Prince of Peace who will reign. Amen. Amen. Look at the next verse. This is the verse that's most familiar at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, we have said over the this past year lots of bad news but can i share that good news with you this morning that jesus has been born that child who was born in bethlehem's manger who is prophesied by those prophets of old and he is the son the eternal son of god who is given to us on that very time that day and we have really god's plan in action and I like what Isaiah 9 2, we read that verse, that a people who walked in darkness will see a great light. They have received that great light. And we who walked in darkness have light. And oh, I'm thankful for that. And we don't have to worry about that. You know, we live in a time where it seems that everybody's ready to get angry with one another, right? Uh, walking on eggshells. Uh, you go to the family dinner and they say, You know, don't, in polite conversation, bring up politics and religion, right? Well, I would back it up and say it's hard to find polite conversation anymore, period. And uh, I would say that those are important topics. Certainly, the Lord is the most important. But, you know, we live in a time where people are so divided. And when you have two people, you have three opinions, right? You know, that's kind of the way things go. And, but I'm glad that as we approach Christmas, we're reminded of that one who's the one whose the government will reside upon him and does reside upon him. Aren't you thankful for that? Only good government will be Christ's government. Amen. Amen. His name is called Wonderful. That's one who is filled with wonder. He is the great counselor. Lots of people this Christmas season looking for a counselor. <laughs> You know, looking for counsel, looking for someone to fix their woes and their hurts. And their, I'm not making light of those things. This is a tough time of year for many people. But he's the great counselor. Don't ever forget that. He is the one who ultimately meets the need of every heart. And you will not find any solace in your heart until you turn to him in faith and receive him in your heart. It's that simple. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father, the Father of eternity, literally is how that's written. And He's ultimately the Prince of Peace. He guarantees you peace between God and man, man and God. By the blood of His cross, He guaranteed that peace. He gives us peace in our hearts. He does that. You know, we look at the prophetic account from Isaiah about what was going to happen, that a child would be born, a son would be given. And we come to the historical record in the Gospels, and we read of that very account. Another familiar text is Luke chapter 2. 
And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. This census first took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Now I want to just say this, that sometimes you do not have a choice in the burdens that are placed upon you. And in those days, I often think of that. We know the context here that Mary's getting ready to deliver a child. Um, and that whole aspect of her pregnancy has been quite you know, overshadowed by the fact that she was a virgin and now she's pregnant. And Joseph at first was wanting to put her away privately, as in to call off a marriage. They were engaged to be married. And he thinks, well, she's with child and he knows it's not his. And of course, God explains that. And the angel comes and tells him and tells Mary. And they know, but no one else knows, really. A few. But we don't have much more than that. Certainly would have turned heads among family members who wouldn't have understood. Among society that wouldn't have understood. And that burden was upon Mary. That burden was upon Joseph. And now, in the midst of that, and the thinking about how am I going to provide for a family, here Joseph now has to go back to the ancestral place of his family and Mary's family, Bethlehem. And there, they're going to be registered and be taxed by the Roman government, which was another burden. I don't know if any of you find taxes burdensome, but sometimes they are, aren't they? (laughs) They certainly are. All the weight of the world on that couple as they go to Bethlehem. Things that they did not choose, but yet things that came their way. He goes on to say, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea and to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I often think of that burden. She's pregnant and nearing the end of her term and having to come to Bethlehem, a distant village to go. And then while she's there... She gets ready to deliver the child and there's no room for them in the, in the place of accommodation for strangers and travelers. So they have to go to a manger, which is a place where animals are kept overnight and they are uh, fed there. And that's where Jesus was going to enter into this world. And he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. I like that. Just wrapped in whatever they had, rags, of such to do that now there were were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night and behold an angel of the lord stood before them and the glory of the lord shone round them and they were greatly afraid then the angel said to them do not be afraid for behold i bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people not just the jewish people not just Mary and Joseph, but 
all people. That's you and me as well. And I'm thankful for that because I once walked in great darkness, spiritual darkness. Not as dark maybe as some because I had some knowledge of scripture. Not much, but I had some. I lived in a country and do live in a country where this book that I have open before me is still foundational to a lot of things, even though people might not realize that. And so I didn't walk in some of the darker regions of parts of our world where someone has never seen a Bible or handled that. Read that headline about Kim Jong-un. He's banned Christmas. That's not new, by the way. It's been banned in North Korea for lots of years. So have Christians been banned, essentially. If you're a professing Christian and you let anybody know about that, you end up in a, in a camp, a work camp, that will most likely result in your premature death within a year or so. That's the way that goes. There's very few Christians in North Korea, and yet there are still Christians that are there. One of the most persecuted nations in the world. And yet, Jesus died for all of them as well. And came into this world for all of them. For all people. Everywhere. I didn't grow up in a place like North Korea. I grew up in Quimby, Maine. Alright? A little better than North Korea. Right? And I look at that and I think, Lord, thank you for the where I... But I still was spiritually dark. I didn't know who Jesus was, really. I knew his name. And for me, it had really just become a, a swear name. Because that's how I used it more often than not. And yet, later on in that Christmas season of 1987, as I was a senior in high school and someone witnessed to me, I realized that I needed a Savior. And that began for me over the next few months, a journey of faith where I began to dig in the scriptures and all of a sudden God brought his light to me and I realized I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And it made sense to me why Jesus came. He came to save me from my sins. That's simple. And he came to save you. It's for all people. Because all people have that same need. You may be raised in a Christian family. And you may have all kinds of Christian influence. And the knowledge of Jesus Christ even is a very common thing as you sit around the table and you talk. But you still can be spiritually darkened if you've never received that gift of Christmas. The gift of Jesus himself. Lots of lost, dark people, spiritually dark people, sitting in church pews and in seats in churches today. Don't let that be you. He offers you the invitation of his grace to sit at his table, and it's from the greatest gift that was ever given, which is Jesus. Years ago, a man named John uh, George McCausland Uh, who was the director of the YMCA in western Pennsylvania, found himself in a very difficult position. He was working about 85 hours a week, and on top of that had other obligations, obviously, and all the things were going there. And he found as the hours piled up with the ministry and with family and with everything else that he no longer could sleep, and he found himself just on that treadmill of life that just doesn't seem to stop you know he was worried he looked for some kind of therapy in the process of that and 
When he finally did find someone who was a counselor, the man said, you're on the verge of a nervous breakdown. You need to make some changes. Probably good advice. It's hard to let go of things, though, when they're your, your responsibilities, right? Finally, when it got too heavy for him, and he felt like his very life was hanging in the balance, he decided that one day he would just stop what he was doing and go for a long walk in the woods. And that's what he did. And as he was out walking through the woods and through the forest there, he found himself beginning to relax a bit. Finally, he sat underneath a tree, and as he was looking around, he realized it was the first time in months that he had had any time alone just to think and to sit and to relax. It was then that he took out his notebook, and he, uh, he took out his notebook, and, and he said this, <laughs> Dear God, today I hereby resign as general manager of the universe. Love, George. And he said a great burden was lifted off his shoulders. Great burden. The burden of carrying something that wasn't his to begin with. And it was then that George understood that he was trying to carry what God is only allowed to carry. My friends, life is so hard and heavy that you will not carry it alone. Only God can hold those things. And he said, God accepted my resignation. Which he didn't think he would, but he did. It wasn't that George got done what he was doing, but all of a sudden the burden of the responsibility was lifted off him and he found himself being able to do more and to be able to relax in the midst of it. And he did that. I'll say it this way. Many of us probably need that kind of resignation letter to be written today. Lord, I resign as general manager of the universe. Right? Love Jack. (laughs) It's that simple. Well, I wanted to look at a couple or a few words, and the first word, it's really only one word in various forms, but the word resignation. Resignation. See, that's what George had to come to. He had to resign. He had to come to that point where he submitted a resignation. Unfortunately, many people don't do that. Many of us think that we can just continue to carry everything, and we forget that we're not God. And we were never intended to be God. And you wonder why so many in our world today find no hope and they find nothing but burdens that are overwhelming and the levels of anxiety and mental health issues and everything else are just skyrocketing. So much of it is because as we go further away from God, we go further away from the understanding that He is in charge. And there's things I can change and there's a lot of things I can't change. When Mary and Joseph were going down to Bethlehem, or going to Bethlehem, as they were traveling there, there were things that could be changed. They certainly could have taken a different route, maybe. Although they had to, by constraint, go to that place. And she couldn't change when she was going to deliver a baby. That was set in order. Things happen there, and you can't do anything. But the way they could react to it, certainly, was like that. As I look at the end of 2023 and I glance back over this year, I often wonder, what has God taught me? You know, what has he taught me? Ray Pritchard talked about that back in, I think it was 2019. He, this time of year, he went out for a bike ride down there in, uh, I believe it was in Mississippi where he was. 
And as he was going along, it was, you know, a cool morning, but the trails were dry, except for one little spot of ice. And he was always told by people who ride bikes, don't ride on ice. And he experienced that when he rode over a patch of ice and then found himself lying in the pathway with his ankle dangling. You know, he had broken his leg. Over much of that year, he spent rehabilitating to where, um, well, after he, he had surgery and everything was put back in place, he had to move around with a uh, basically a little scooter for a little bit around the house and then had to eventually uh, go from that to learning to walk again with crutches and then eventually putting weight on it and all that. And it was nearing the end of that year of, uh, I believe it was 2019, that he had to go to a board meeting and, um, and, and this would have been, I think he fell in, it must have been January of 2019, and so the end of 2019, he went to a board meeting for the Keep Believing ministry, which he is a part of. And one of the men there said, what did God teach you in that? And he said it brought him back short because no one had asked him about that, nor that question. What did God teach you through this? And he began to think about those things and the lessons that he learned. It was more than just lessons of don't ride on the ice, right? Sometimes that's all we think. We don't go further than that. But through the, the stopping of things, he, he understood that he had to resign the use of his strength. And many, many other things. There were many lessons that were learned in that. Sometimes we realize that we in ourselves cannot carry the burden the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And I would pass on, and someone else would say it this way, the stops also, right? The stops of a good man, the stops of a good woman, the stops of someone who's following the Lord. Sometimes those stops come, and they might be the slip on the ice, right? Lots of things like that. But you know, Hopefully you can get back up and ride again, right? Keep moving. Keep doing that. Learning to let him lift us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Very simple verse, right? He cares for you. You might feel all alone this Christmas season. You might say, well, you know, the kids have grown up, they've moved on, or, or maybe there's, you know, been something happening a loss of a person in your life or you're remembering back to people who aren't around anymore and there's that sense of aloneness all of that but understand he cares for you more than i can care for you or anybody else he cares for you that comes to my second form of that word resigning that's the present tense form of the action of resignation right resigning and see i've discovered and i think i don't learn it perfectly because i i have to go and repeat grades all the time it seems like in my life god's grade school resignation is a process of resigning every day just about the time we think we stand 
boom, something comes and we fall, right? And the Bible actually warns us, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's a good warning. Because just about the time you think you can walk on the ice and you slip and you fall, you realize, no, I can't, you know? Those kind of things. And I'm not talking so much about physical things as I am. We don't stand alone in those things. But the process of resigning, it's really the process of being a Christian. It's the process of making God big and us less. Realizing, Lord, you're still in control of the universe today. Tomorrow when I wake up, I have to say it again. Because I have the habit of taking back some of those things that I resigned. The process of resigning. It's really the cloak of humility is what it is. And sometimes we're forced into humility. Other times we have to learn it by graciously going through those things that make us get off our high horse. It's interesting that if you were to visit the Church of the Nativity, I haven't visited there, um, you notice this picture of the entrance into that church. And it looks like somebody originally had a big, big doorway there, an archway, and it's now been all walled up, and there's just this little short doorway. Well, you aren't wrong. That is exactly what is there, so they tell me. And so this picture describes... You see, over the centuries, all the people who came through that land, you know, trying to conquer it, and you had all kinds of different people that would ride into Bethlehem, and some of these conquerors and knights and others that would come in, and they'd be riding on their high horse. And you know what they would do? They would just ride right into the sanctuary of that church, and they would take a look, and then they would ride back up. So the custodians of that place decided they would put stones and they would make a small entrance and the reason was not to limit access but it limited the way people could access you see you had to get off your high horse to go in (laughs) what an analogy of faith because you see to enter into the relationship with jesus christ you have to realize it's not about you it's about him and when we see him, who he, how he really is, and, and by the way, he's not contained in a building or a church or anything like that. He's bigger than all that. He's the master of creation, the master of the universe. He's Lord of everything. And you have to get off your high horse to understand that. And if you won't, you'll never be in a right relationship with him. If you're going to come to Jesus Christ, you have to do so by faith. And faith demands that we get down. I think of that because that's the illustration that Jesus provides for us in the very act of his birth. The God of creation, the one who is, as Isaiah says, the mighty God. The everlasting Father, the Father of eternity. That one humbles himself and enters into the human race and is bound by all the things we are in the human race, except without sin. And he enters and is born in a manger, in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, of all places. And the Bible says in Luke 2, 7, She brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and, and, and cloths, and, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. What humility. What humility. And by the way, it didn't end there. 
Because later on, the Apostle Paul writes about the humility of Jesus Christ and he encourages Christians to live like that. As a backdrop to why we should live for him and not for ourselves. And that is totally counterculture, by the way, in our world today. Because everything that is being fed to you in the current culture of America and in the West here is it's about you. It's about what you want and how you will see yourself or others. It's about you, right? And it's so different from what the Bible says. Paul writes, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Imagine if we actually all followed that all the time. Wow, what a change in our world, right? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, literally the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's coming into the the manger at Bethlehem, being born there, taking the form of a bondservant. Even more than that, he was a willing servant, a slave. Jesus came into this world, and of all the professions he could have chosen to you know, demonstrate who he was, he chooses the profession of a slave. I say profession. <laughs> you didn't have much choice in being a slave, Right? He willingly gave over the use of himself to a world of sinners. And then it says, In coming the likeness of man, men, and being found in the appearance of a man, not just the appearance, but he was actually a man. He became hum- it says he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So his birth is really something. I mean, that the fact that God would humble himself to come into this world in a feeding trough in Bethlehem that should just blow your mind but even greater than that that he would die at the hands of a rebellious and sinful world and not only any old death you know when we talk about death and watching you know cruel and unusual punishment things like that for capital crimes and, and there's some concern to that obviously when Jesus came into this world and, and suffered the death of, of a capital crime which he didn't commit he did so at the cross, which is the worst of ways to go out of this world. The worst ways. I could not imagine another way and, and of, of going through pain. Even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. The act of resigning. And that's what Jesus did. Ultimately, he gave over the use of his perfections as God to the will of the Father. And he's born in Bethlehem's manger. And then he had to learn and grow up like we all have to grow up in a world. And he would have to take on, you know, sitting in school being disciplined in school from you know for various things not for him i mean saying that he was he was bad but learning how to you know write and to to read obviously and to dictate things and 
to memorize stuff. And all of that's part of the humanity of Christ. He who spoke the very things of the world, worlds into existence had to put himself under the orders of man. And then ultimately being led to the cross, being obedient unto death. Wow. The central miracle. And, and that, I think, is summed up best in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And he has shown us. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Good verse to follow, isn't it? Good verse to write, maybe write and hang it somewhere near your mirror. So when you walk in the, wherever that mirror is, you know, and get ready for the day, and you look at that verse first and say, what does he require of you today? To walk humbly with him. And then there's the other form of the word, resigned. That's the past tense, right? I finally resigned. <laughs> and that's the, probably the harder part, but it's really the idea of, you know, what Brooks said, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The act of God and the act of the birth of Christ, the incarnation, that whole miracle that was there, is a really a, a point we look back in in history and we can say, I've now resigned. The king of the universe has come. He is there. Emmanuel, right? Over 2,000 years ago, he's done that. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, sometimes we have to come to the end of ourselves and realize I've finally resigned. And I think one of the, and I've said this numerous times, I always love to make the connection between the events of history in the Old Testament to the things in the New Testament to the everyday life that we have today. I think the Bible is applicable to all people everywhere in whatever time, whatever culture, whatever circumstance you find yourself in. It is enough for you. The story of Ruth in the Old Testament is an amazing story. You have that four-chapter book, right? I mean, it's, it's a very short book in the Old Testament. It's the greatest love letter, I think, that's ever written. And you have in that short account the resignation of a widow, two widows, really, the widow of Naomi, who's lost her husband and her sons, and she resigns in bitterness. She says, I'm going back to Bethlehem from a place called Moab. Moab was a bad place. It was a place that she should never have gone there, but her husband led her there, and she went willingly as well, apparently. And when she's down there, her sons marry Moabite women. And the Moabites had no promise in the, with the people of God. They were accursed. <laughs> they were, God called them his wash pot. And there thinking that somehow they could find help in a time of famine, they discover that it's anything but that. And over ten years later, we find the sons are now dead, and the husband is now dead, and Naomi decides she's going back to Bethlehem bitter. She says that, call my name Mara, Mara, which is bitterness, bitterness. She's, I think, at that point resigned to just go back and die, 
maybe die later on, hopefully find a little bread before that, but just to die in bitterness. What an awful way. If that story ended in chapter 1, man, we'd be, we'd be like, that's awful. But it doesn't. You see, there's a, a daughter-in-law named Ruth, a Moabite woman. She has seen something in Naomi, and it's really not Naomi. It's Naomi's God, and, and she desires to follow Naomi's God. And that's the story of Ruth. Ruth goes with Naomi, and here's Naomi. She has no offspring of her own anymore. She has no grandchildren. She has no hope. She's just bitter. And yet, this Moabite daughter-in-law comes out with her, both widows, in a terrible situation. Imagine the heaviness that was on those two. And God uses his divine hand to provide for Ruth and Naomi in the gleanings of a field owned by a man named Boaz. They later find out that Boaz is a man who's he can be a kinsman redeemer, and there's the law of the redeemer, and all that stuff is found in scripture, where he could marry the widow of a relative and he could bring her in and bear children with that woman to bring up the name of the dead husband and dead man's family because he wanted a legacy in children right and that's exactly what takes place the story of Ruth and Boaz and a marriage and a baby think about that wow and we pick it up in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. And this is the story of, of the end of the book of Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. She who had been widowed and had no children, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, who had lost her two sons, they, all of a sudden, there's a little glimmer of hope. A baby's born. A baby's born. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of, the, of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. In Luke chapter 2 we see, Joseph and Mary headed down to Bethlehem, the ancient place of Naomi and Ruth, because they're in the house and lineage of David. And the women had said back in Ruth's time, may his name be famous. His name is famous because we're still talking about him. His name is Jesus. And he will enter into your dark and lonely and burdensome life and give you hope and joy. And you can have life restored. That's what the Bible says. Because our sins can be forgiven. But you can't come any other way but through him. That's it. Oh, this Christmas season. Throw yourself to him in faith. And say, Lord, take it. 
take my life, take my sin first and foremost and forgive me of my sin. And he will. He promised to do that. Christ died for your sins. But it's like any gift that you might, you know, we're getting ready to exchange gifts in most households somewhere. And, and you have to receive that gift and then open that gift. You, otherwise, it just sits there all wrapped up and never being used. Don't be that person who leaves Jesus <laughs> and never unwraps the gift that he offers, which is a gift of salvation, of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for who you are. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your kingdom is forever. And, Lord, I am mindful that through the dark circumstances, sometimes the heavy things that come, the big decisions, all of those things, Lord, are worked out by your hand. And I thank you, God, that there were people who were obedient so many years ago to travel at the behest of a Gentile emperor, one who was probably more just concerned about taxing people, but they, in obedience, went and went back to that great city, that town, a little village, really, of Bethlehem. And there, O oh God, a Savior was born. And we look to him today. And I pray again, Lord, if there's anybody here or listening to this message that has not received you in faith, that today would be the day they would receive you as Savior. And Lord, you, as you've promised, you've promised to be their Savior and then we ask that you would do that, O oh God. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.